Hello? Hello? It's all around us. everybody what's up this is Ro to save time this week I'm just going to do the intro by myself uh, because this is a long show this show comes in at right around two hours but it's a lot of fun um, this week we have the mysterious life and fake death of Jesse James and the guests for the show are Jan- Daniel J. Duke and Teresa F. Duke the um, they claim and I do believe them they are the great great grandson and great great granddaughter of Jesse James after he faked his death and started his life over again down in Blevins Texas they have a good amount of evidence behind them. It's backed up. They've got DNA testing. You know, we'll go into all of that in this episode. This is one of the longest shows I've recorded in a while. Even after editing, I think it still comes in at just over two hours. And uh, it, it's it's nuts. It's really crazy. So I apologize for the delay in getting this one out. I've just had a lot of stuff going on here. And um, it's the end of the summer, so we're tying up loose ends and all this stuff. Again, as I've said before, you would think with a pandemic and people not going anywhere, I would have tons of time on my hands. But I haven't. I am also in the process of putting together the other show, Old Nerds Drinking, which is myself and my buddy John Patrick. It's more or less his show. I'm just the guy on the other microphone sitting on the other end. And we've been working on the studio to get that one up and running. That's going to be um, a very different show. The Facebook page is already up for it, and we're going to try running through the test episode tomorrow, and we'll see how it goes. Anyways, James Nettles is co-hosting with me this week. James Nettles is a uh, author, friend of the show, been on here several times, helped me co-host many times. He has a new project up and running. It's a massive project that has to deal with, uh, it's called Continual, and basically it is a virtual online conference and podcasts and all of these different things. It's really interesting. It's an insane amount of work. I don't know how the hell the guy's pulling it off. We're going to be talking about that at the end of the episode. So if you can manage to make it through this two-hour show and you want to hang out and see what's going on with that at the other end, it'd be really cool if you did because James is putting in a crap ton of work into this. Anyways, having said all of that, let's just jump into this show because it's already long enough as it is. And it was a real pleasure to talk to these two. These are uh, These are people who really, really, really know what the hell they're talking about. Like, even after the show is over with, we continue chatting with them for a good 20 minutes, and there's still more information out there about this. So if you're into strange and weird history, uh, you know, give it a listen, and hopefully you guys make it all the way through. See you at the other side.
All right, so tonight we've got the author Daniel J. Duke and Teresa F. Duke on the show to talk about the mysterious life and fate death of Jesse James. Um, I've heard you guys on many other podcasts, and I was saying before the show that I want to try to go into different directions with this. But um, why don't you guys give us both the Dime Store tour of who you are and what you've done, because this is really, you guys are really, really extensively involved into this. And I will say up front that I do believe what you say. I, I believe that you guys are legitimate. I think there's a good body of evidence to support what you guys are talking about here. Um, so we'll get that right out of the way. But uh, whoever wants to start first or jump in here, you know, tell us who you are, how you got involved with this and, and what this is all about. Okay. Thank I'll let you. my sister go first. Oh, thanks, Danny. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we started with my mom. It, my mom was the one who got all this started. She she has written several books on the subject, but she heard about it her entire life, and she wanted to, um, you know, just decided one day to do the research to to find out once and for all the rumors she always heard about Jesse James being her great great grandfather. And it just went from there. Me and Danny helped her do the research with her books. And she uh, passed away in 2015. And we both made a vow to keep up the research and, you know, just keep going with it. And and that's what we did. So and once we get into it, it's like there's always it takes us down little rabbit holes. So it's always something new that we're finding out and discovering so you guys both wrote on this book. Who was responsible for finding what in this book? Oh, God, that's a good question. We've um, it's just over the last 20 plus years. Our mother found a lot. I had found each of us had found equally important finds. But, um, oh, God, I mean, a lot of times we found out things together. You know, somebody would we, we would decide on a topic to, to attack or research first and we'd go down that together and then get back later and see where each of us had ended up on that. And, you know, if we, anybody had any fines, it was just we tried to keep real, you know, have a system down. So because there's so many rabbit holes you can go off on the, on these stories, we needed to keep organized. And that's how we went about it. But I'd say it was I have to say it was equal. Uh, Teresa's actually found more than me in terms of photos, which was interesting. So, yeah. And then go ahead. Yeah. And Danny found, um, so I think the big thing for us is the DNA. When my mom was doing the research for the DNA that they did in 1995, proving he was Jesse James, which they didn't prove, um, the, there's just a whole lot of loopholes that we, I mean, a lot of things we found in there that they didn't prove, and there was a lot of discrepancies, but Danny found um, a big key thing in the 1995 exhumation with the um, uh, relatives who were saying they were Jesse James, that they did the blood test against, they may not have been Je Jesse James's relatives. Danny, do you want to tell them about that? Yeah, they had a, well, during the 1995 exhumation, they were claiming to, they claimed they retrieved DNA, which they didn't from the grave. And they led people to believe it came from the grave they exhumed. And it wasn't from from the grave at all. Uh, the grave they exhumed had um, had male and female bones in that grave. And there was no no proof as to whose graves that was uh, then or who was buried in that grave. So 
they got DNA from another source, which is also highly questionable. And um, to make a long story short, the guy, the people they tested it against were supposedly known descendants of the James family. And so I thought, okay, I'll check out, you know, their genealogy. And it was, it's highly questionable at best. And they claimed they were descended from Dorothy Rose, who was a descendant from the James family. And I found out Dorothy Rose's parents likely weren't who she, she thought they were or who it was claimed they were. Um, her, her, her mother was, she had a completely different mother and that throws off the mitochondrial DNA testing they did, but just because the uh, mitochondrial DNA is carried down through the females in a family and it stops with the males. You'll have the same, like if like me, for instance, I'll have the same mitochondrial DNA my mother had, but I can't pass that on to any children I may have. And so, and the thing is, you know, so that was highly questionable on their, their genealogy. They descent, their descent is highly questionable yet both sides. We, we knew this, they knew it very well. There was a known of, undisputable living descendant of the James family who had the same mitochondrial DNA. Her name was Sue Laura Hale and she lived in California and they never, they never asked her. They never bothered her. They, they didn't go that route for some unknown reason. And she was the only one who was unquestionable on her descent. So my mother contacted her and she was in her late eighties, I believe. And, um, she mom asked her if she could submit DNA through a strict chain of custody through her doctor. So she went to her doctor, submitted the DNA strict chain of custody to a DNA doctor here in Texas. And they, they tested that against mom's DNA and proved there was a close, definite relationship. So just on that alone, we've got more evidence than the historically accepted story has. So to be and, clear, and that's just one of any points. You are the great great grandchildren of Jesse James. Yes. Okay, and that was linked back to the DNA evidence directly from a Jesse James descendant in the family. Yes. Correct. Okay, so that I DNA evidence, in my opinion, the stuff that you guys have in this book, if this stuff were submitted in court, it would be submittable in court. DNA. It's not something, I mean, yes, you can fake it. It can be botched up. It can be messed with. But I don't get the feeling that you guys have done a substantial amount of work. I mean, you guys, this this shit goes way back with you guys. You guys are in this stuff really deep. And if you guys were hoaxing this, you're putting, a, if you were doing this, you've put a lot of work into hoaxing it. And if you were hoaxing it, I would at least commend you on the effort that you would be to hoax it. But again, I don't <laughs> think that you are. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying well, that you did, well. but if you did. <laughs> so. Yeah, and DNA is one of those things that works really well to help disprove things, but they, it's not as good sometimes as, as to prove things when you run into family lines. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, and I mean, that's that's really kind of the thing that everybody doesn't necessarily get, especially when you go back a couple of generations. You can use it to discount something, but it can be really hard to prove something. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's why our the doctor we're using, he's out of San Antonio. Uh, he does work for the federal government, state and cities and also individuals. But he uh, he told us, if you want to prove this with DNA alone, you need to go up each generation in your family and you know prove that you're you're the descendant of your mother and then mom from her father and then him from his mother and her to Jesse and then from Jesse to Jesse's mother, Zerelda, 
you know, he said that way in court, you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's. And the problem with doing that, just getting ex- people, people blow out. Like we tried to get an exhumation permission to exhume the body and do DNA testing. And we weren't going to exhume the body in the traditional sense, you know, like dig up the entire grave. All it required was boring a small hole down into the grave and retrieving a dime sized piece of bone. That's all they needed. But people blow that out of proportion, especially in court, and act like it's a violation of the sanctity of the grave. And they they paint a picture like you're trying to completely excavate the grave and everything around it. And it just it paints, a, I guess, a negative light on what exhumations really are. Now, let's uh, go into the photo evidence you got as well, because you guys have actually taken you guys have family pictures on your side of the family that you've taken to. Um, photo mapping recognition uh, technology. I'm, I'm completely botching the words here because for whatever my brain, my brain's farting out on me, but you guys have also <laughs> gone to reputable, um, you know, highly respected people to have your photos cross analyzed with the actual photos. So go into a little bit about the photo evidence you got. I'm doing this more or less to establish that you guys know what you're talking about. So tell us oh, okay. about the photo evidence too. Well, yeah, well, my sister and my mother had uh, started that on the photos I was living in Houston at the time. I remember they called me and they were real excited about it. But they, to make a long story short on that, they, they took our family photos that we had that were passed down through the family and compared those to known, known historically accepted photos of Jesse and his family members. And mom, mom didn't want, you know, like the James Farman Museum in Missouri, at the time they were using a I think he was a watercolorist. He painted with watercolor, not watercolors or something. Like he was a painter, and that that was their photographic analyst, which was fine. But when it's on a in such an important, you know, when you're affecting history, you you'd think people would want the best they could find. Mom went to the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is our state police, and their forensics lab proved, you know, or told us within. You know, our photos definitely matched matched Jesse's family's photos. And, uh, you know, that was great. So we went to the Austin. She next took it to the Austin Police Department photographic forensic forensics labs. Sorry, I can't speak right tonight for some reason. Oh, I can relate. Uh, <laughs> and they, they verified it. And then the third she went to a third group and she never had to pay any of these people. They were real nice people. Did it, you know, just on their spare time. And because, so, you know, our later and I'll I'll tell you why in a minute why i said that the third group was visionics out of new jersey who at the time were world leaders in facial recognition technology and they they contracted out to the military and international airports and stuff and they also verified our photos matched so you know our photos matched the known photos of the james jesse and his family and as soon as that came out a lot of the people some of our detractors a certain group of them um, started harassing everybody who'd helped. I'm mean, calling them, sending them letters, emails, everything they could do to harass them. And they got it to it. Luckily we got everything in paper. So we had proof that they verified all this because afterwards nobody wanted to help or touch it or even talk about it anymore. They tried to get people at the APD fired for doing, um, uh, uh, wasting public funds and things of that nature. So that's pretty ballsy to go after a state police department and people that are high up in the chain. To yeah, I it mean, is. I mean, I'm not going to call a state police department and start harassing. You don't, you just don't harass the cops on stuff like that. You know, it's yeah. 
It's These just, some yeah. of these people have have very little filter on what they can or shouldn't do, and they they don't have much of a filter. There's the same ones who later sent death threats to my mother and and the rest of us. Oh, this this okay. <laughs> this blows my mind because you guys are technically. I mean, is is now the people that are on that side are they're the Jesse James family? I'm assuming the descendants of Jesse James before he died. Correct. They they claim to be okay. Uh, so you guys are more or less family for the most part. If one way to, to look at it in another way, so this is kind yeah. of the strange, like years long family food family feud Hatfields and McCoys kind of thing. You know, <laughs> yes. it, 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 it blows well, my mind. I mean, you most people have family problems at Christmas and Thanksgiving and stuff. Yeah. You know, they don't. You know, you guys yeah, are you're legitimately fighting over your bloodline, and yeah, it's I, I can't understand how. Like, why, why is this going this way? You would think, at least I would think, that you'd say, hey, here is our proof. We have legitimate proof. We've got DNA. We've got photos. We've got all of this stuff. Let's sit down and try to solve all this stuff together and make everybody a part of it. Like, it's not going yeah. to yeah. diminish the legend of Jesse James or the history of it. If anything, it'll add to the history and make it better. Maybe I'm just I mean, talking on my ass here. <laughs> <laughs> And see, that's what my mom thought when she first started this. She thought everyone would be just so happy to hear that Jesse James didn't die, as history stated. And boy, were we wrong. I mean, they were anything but happy. <laughs> they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want anything to do with it. They said, uh, well, and later on, you know, when you when somebody reacts with that kind of, I guess, vitriol, uh, you, you have to wonder why. I mean, why? What? Why would they be so violent about, you know, in their reactions? And I, I think it, I, it's my personal opinion. I can't answer for them as to why they did it, but I think it was money. I remember back in the, I think late nineties, the James Farman museum was bringing in around 7 million a year in tourist dollars. And when you start talking money, I think that's what caused such a crazy reaction yeah but it's not well, going to make me not want to go there and see it i'm not gonna be like well yeah. jesse james didn't die there so i don't want to go there and see that now it, it, that doesn't that doesn't it, if anything there's more money to be made because it, it continues the legend on anyways go ahead james well i was gonna say so do you think there's a uh, thing there where they're thinking maybe you're going to be trying to get a share of those revenues you know and I, that was where the money so. part of it that that's exactly what we thought they the, either that or they thought they'd lose money and you know we didn't want we didn't want to claim any ownership to the James farm or anything along those lines. We were just after the truth. And the truth seemed to piss a lot of people off. So yeah. well, a good truth usually does. I mean, that's yeah. part of the fun of it. But that's true. so do you think that there were, could have been an opportunity uh, and, uh, you know, not necessarily now, but could have been an opportunity then to say, hey, look, we're you know, we're happy to sign, you know, no claims to anything here. We just want to get down to a family truth here. And look at even doing a DNA test between you guys and them to see if there's any kind of familial lineage. Oh, yeah. And when we we asked about their DNA that they allegedly had on record, that just that that was a whole new stirring up a whole new hornet's nest. Because when we looked into the 95 DNA, you know, the 1995 exhumation they'd done, which they claimed they they proved with DNA, uh, we found out. Everything about the 1995 exhumation was completely wrong. They 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 lied, and even the 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 guy that they had head this exhumation was named. He was Professor James E. Stars. He wasn't a doctor. He was a professor of law. And you'd think 
on a historical basis or just any exhumation, you'd want somebody who was a forensic anthropologist or somebody who who was qualified legally in that field. This guy was a law professor. He had nothing to his uh, forensics was a, a hobby of his. And so that aside, he, he went, he, he exhumed the grave in the cemetery, Mount Olivet Cemetery in Missouri, and couldn't find what he was looking for. And he found female and male bones in the grave. And there's no, there's no proof as to whether that was the right grave or not, because if you look throughout the history, you know, at the history of that cemetery, that people used to switch the headstones around to keep grave robbers confused. You know, people looking for souvenirs and artifacts. So there's that, and that throws a big, you know, a cloud of confusion on it. And then when they did exhume it, uh, he didn't find the DNA that he wanted. There was the uh, a man named Stephen Caruso, who was the Clay County Commissioner at the time. And he had a friend who was the Clay County Parks Director named John Hartman. Well, my mother and I interviewed Stephen Caruso in person up in Kansas City. And he told us the whole thing was a farce. He couldn't stand the way it was done. He called it a tawdry sideshow. And uh, he, they couldn't find the DNA from the grave. So they they uh, went to court and petitioned to get DNA, a, a tooth and a sample of hair that were allegedly Jesse's. So we we researched the origin of this tooth and hair. The tooth was found in 1978 when the curator of the museum was digging up parts of the yard around the James farm. He found a hog tooth, a dog tooth, some animal bones, and a human tooth. And he put them in a Tupperware bowl and saved them and would hand out some of the bones to friends. So that was the origin of the tooth. There's no, there's no chain of custody, no proof as to whose it was or where it came from. Then the hair they got, Stephen Caruso, supposed, he told us, he cut the hair off of John Hartman's head and submitted that when he was ordered by the court to hand over the samples because uh, Stephen Crusoe was a Clay County attorney and he held the hair and the tooth in his possession for the, the James farm. So he submitted John Hartman's hair as Jesse's hair and they tested that and he submitted the tooth. He didn't tell us where it came from, but he alluded to the, the tooth being of the same origins as the hair was, you know, from a, from a diff, it wasn't Jesse's, it wasn't even an old tooth. So, he submitted this tooth and hair, and they tested it and claimed it was Jesse's, and D- the DNA from it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that history was right. And there's no <laughs> – it's just – it's like a great big – oh, it reminds me of the well, shell games. Well, you got to remember in 95, too, the cost of doing a DNA test was significantly more than it is today, and the quality was a lot lower. Exactly. So, and, and you were only testing, if I remember right, 16, alle- uh, 16 alleles at the time. I don't remember for sure, but it was something yeah. like that. Yeah, and they did it through Penn State University. But the whole point on that, the tooth in the hair didn't even come from a grave. It didn't even come from the James farm. The hair came from the Clay County Parks director's head. <laughs> and they submitted that. And the tooth, he said, was of similar origin. But he wouldn't go into detail on, as to where he got the tooth. So- but those results should be on file. I mean, that's that they should be. I mean, if they were done. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 I, that's perjury or whatever the hell it is. Not perjury, but that's that's lying to the court. I mean, that's that's false. Yeah, evidence. To me, I would call that fraud, in my opinion. Yeah. The whole thing was fraud. Uh, and and also they said that they couldn't. What was it, Teresa? They said uh, James Stars, the law professor. Oh, when asked why they couldn't exhume Zerelda, Jesse's mother, and just test 
her DNA against the DNA in the grave. Um, the law professor, James Starr, said that Missouri law stated that you couldn't exhume someone unless there was a mysterious circumstance surrounding their death. You know, like she had to have been murdered or po- you know, something like that. There, there was no such law. He just made that up. And when questioned about it, we pinned him on that, got him cornered, and he admitted that he embellished that part of it. And I thought, well, if you're lying about that, what else did you not? What else did he lie about? And there's yeah. a lot of holes in his stories. See, this is why I believe you guys, because your evidence is traceable. It stacks um, and you have no problem putting it out there. You have you know, a somewhat chain of, of where your evidence came from. And that, I mean, yeah. you guys just know a lot of stuff. <laughs> I mean, you just throw names out and everything. So, Yeah, and my, my mom even tried to go, you know, um, she wanted to exhume our great-grandfather, um, but that that didn't go over. She tried, though. I mean, her, her heart was really in the right place. She really wanted to prove this. And it just seems like there were stumbling blocks every step of the way. Yeah. Um, some of our family members, some of our, our known relatives fought against our, our exhumation attempt just because they said it was a violation of the sanctity of the grave. Yet these same relatives, uh, Jesse's father-in-law was a Texas Ranger. His name was Thomas Hudson Barron. He was a captain in the Texas Rangers. And in 1976, they exhumed his grave and moved it to the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum in Waco. They had no problem exhuming him and moving his body away from his wife and leaving his wife in an unmarked grave. Yet when it came to exhuming, just literally boring a small hole in the grave of of Jesse, they fought that tooth and nail in court, which also boils down to a lot of money that they didn't want known. And I suspect, and I'm not sure, it's just another theory of mine I think they may have found some of the uh, treasure he had buried and maybe they didn't want I, maybe they didn't want the IRS knowing about it. I don't know that. I, I think it's almost like they didn't want any light at all shined in that direction. So here's one question I would have on the DNA, though. So if according to what I uh, what I think I understand on theory is it would be the cousin's body that was in the grave. So if you do the the metrilineal DNA. Wouldn't you potentially wind up still with the same DNA from the cousins? Well, I'll say that one more time. I'm so sorry. if you exhume what we believe to be the grave, uh, the actual grave of where the substitute body is. So if we did, if you dug down and actually got the DNA from him, wouldn't it still be in the same family chain? It should be because we believe that was Wood Height buried as right. Jesse. But the problem was when they dug up the grave, it was I guess you could technically consider it a mass grave. Because there were other people's bones in that grave, uh, female were there animal bones in there too, or something as well. Yeah, in the original one, there was animal bones. Yeah, animal. It was a hog tooth, a dog's tooth, and that was around the grave of the original grave because he was originally buried at the James Farm. And in 1902, they exhumed him. They exhumed the body and moved it to Mount Olivet Cemetery, like a mile or two down the road. But they even have record on record stating that. Um, they were also known to move the headstones of everybody in the Mount Olivet, Olivet Cemetery. They have that on record too. So they, it was like a musical, uh, like musical chairs almost, musical headstones. Like and even, they were, even, yeah, and even the casket they exhumed didn't match yeah. the, the the casket they described when they buried him. So at this point, it's like they just really had no. 
idea who they were digging up. It, I mean, that's our opinion because they 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 moved the headstones. I mean, there was just so much to it that proved they didn't prove anything about that DNA in 1995. Now we're at 2020. If you tried to do this again, do you think you would run into the same roadblocks? Because I imagine most of these people that were in charge at the time aren't around anymore. Or are you just to a point now where you don't feel you need to or you're just too burned out on it? We, we, we're never going to quit. But at the same time, I do think with exhumations, it's a long, long fight. And it would make it would take multiple court court battles. But uh, we've got so and like we've got so much other evidence, you know, in photos, uh, letters, his journals that that we've got more proof than the established his, historical version had much more proof. So we're satisfied on that. But we would like to get the DNA proof eventually. Let's get to the crux of the whole situation here. Let's talk about his fake death. Now, it's well known that Jesse James did try to fake his death a couple of times and that every time he did and they brought a body in, Jesse James's mom would be like, oh, yeah, that's him. That's him. You know, knowing that it's not him. And I think uh, yeah. if I'm right, she actually got to a point where they would they couldn't consider her as being an actual witness anymore or a person to go to to identify the body or anything. So um, who wants to start where about the whole process of him leading up to faking his death and how he faked his death? Yeah, I can if you want, Teresa, or you. Uh, yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, and you're right. The Galveston news, a newspaper out of Galveston had had we found one of their articles claiming that, you know, any assurance by Jesse's mother that Jesse was dead could couldn't be taken seriously because she'd lied so many times in the past. And you can't blame her. She's trying to protect her son. But um, when he. He was in Texas when the assassination happened, um, and the guy who was killed was his cousin, Wood Height. Wood Height was involved with uh, in a love triangle between uh, with a, a lady named Martha Bolton. She had relations with—that's a nice way to put it—with Wood Height <laughs> and with uh, uh, her own her farmhand, a man named Jim Gibson. And she was the sister of Bob and Charlie Ford, who allegedly assassinated Jesse. But anyway, they so Wood Height seeing Martha, her and and she's seen her farmhand. And Wood was alleged, you know, he was married to the lady they claimed was Jesse's wife, was actually Wood Height's wife. And I, I'm trying to keep this from being too confusing for people. Wood Height was married to Z Milms, his first cousin. They were both first cousins of Jesse. Wood Height married Z. Z was, or Wood was running around behind Z's back, cheating with Bob and Charlie Ford's sister, who was also sleeping with her own farmhand. <laughs> so there's a fight happens that they get in a gunfight. Wood Height and the farmhand both die. Now the the date of the death is important. A lot of people try to claim it was well. There's it's still controversy. Nobody knows the exact date. Some say it was in December of 1881. Others say it was just short, just a few days before. April 2nd, 1882. And uh, so, so, you know, people, people, what's that? When they found his, so when, so purportedly when Jesse was shot dead, they found Wood Height, his cousin's body, just like a day or two before that. And uh, they did an inquest on his cousin as well. So, I mean, what are the odds, his first cousin and, you know, being found dead, shot in the head when it was Jesse that they were looking for. I mean, there's yeah. just so it's just weird, weird stuff. <laughs> so what Wood Height died, Jim Gibson died. Nobody knows to this day where Wood Height was buried. 
period. Nobody can find his grave. And we believe that's because he was buried as Jesse. But he was his body was brought in. Uh, Jim Gibson was dead, the farmhand. He just disappears after that. Nobody knows where he's buried either or, or anything about him after that. So they, I think, and you know, Jesse, a lot of people don't realize Jesse tried to fake his death in 1879, just a couple of years earlier, and it didn't go over because there was no body. This time his cousin dies. There's a body. It's the best chance he's got to fake his death. The law didn't know what he looked like. They never could identify him. They didn't know if he was 5'8 or 6'2. And they really didn't even know what he looked like for sure. And it didn't help that he would often, often change his hair color before robberies. Uh, Woodhite was said to have bore a strong resemblance to Jesse, which makes sense. They were first cousins and they used his body and passed it off as Jesse uh, at the, the coroner's inquest. The next day, they questioned the lady who was allegedly Jesse's wife, who was really Wood's wife, Z, uh, Z Milms. And she she didn't know his age. And this is a guy she'd supposedly been married to for several years and had two children with. She didn't know how old he was, if he was missing a finger or not. And or in a lot of other details yet, when asked her about her jewelry, she could she could describe that down to fine detail on every diamond she had. So, you know, it was a lot of a lot of the her story also was blown full of holes. Um, Zarelda, Jesse's mother, they had her come to identify the body. She walks in and says, gentlemen, you're mistaken. That's not my son. A lady walked her outside of the house. She came back in a few minutes later, bawling and sobbing and cursing everybody <laughs> for killing her poor boy. So, you know, it just and it just the, it keeps getting deeper. All the details and facts of, surrounding that are, and it's no pun intended, but you can shoot it full of holes. The official story. Okay, so now when the situation where she walks in and says that's not my son, and then they walk her outside and say, "Yo, you you need to change your story right now." This, you know, we're going to pull this off, and then she starts yeah. crying. Like, now where? Not, not that I don't believe you, but where is where is that documented at? How is that documented that that actually happened that way? That was in several books and also some of the newspapers in St. Joe and surrounding cities at the time. And it's the only historical sources available to that. Um, and they were reputable on like the uh, the coroner's inquest. They're mentioned in that. Uh, and, and also reporters at the time, you know, who were, the reporters flocked to the city as soon as they could. But also the people who identified the body, nobody could identify him except his family and fellow gang members. And they weren't going to turn him in. And a, what a lot of people realize is uh, Frank was still out there. So I'm sure if anybody would have gone against the accepted story, they would have worried about Frank killing him. And, you know, back at, I mean, they, they, they weren't angels by any means, you know, the James boys, but, uh, they, and I'm, there was a lot riding on it. I'm sure. Plus, well, for example, they'd killed several Pinkerton agents just for trying to spy on them. So, you know, if somebody gave blew the story wide open and said, that's not Jesse, I'm sure they would have been taken care of if that makes sense. Yeah. Cause he had everybody looking like the Pinkertons were known for being relentless. I think their motto was we never sleep. Um, yeah, they were like the at the time they were the premier detective agency. You didn't screw with those guys and they were purportedly relentless. They so were the Texas Rangers as well. Like you had yeah. the South, you yeah. had the Texas Rangers in the North, you had the Pinkertons. Um, so yeah. you've got everybody looking, chasing you down. Now, what blows my mind is that nobody had a good idea of what he looked like. Nobody could pinpoint exactly what he looked like. So. Were there a lot of people running around claiming that they were the James gang pulling off robberies and stuff like that as well? 
Some say that, and you know, because there there's cases where the James gang was blamed for doing two robberies in two different states at the same time. And people used to say, oh, that's a copycat. Well, what they all, uh, the James gang, everybody in the gang, um, most of them had fought together as guerrilla fighters during the Civil War. And one of their big tactics was split up and hit multiple targets at the same time. And I think that that's exactly how they they did their their robberies. They'd hit stages, banks, trains, all at the same time, sometimes. It wasn't the first time that they tried to claim that Jesse James uh, was shot and killed. It, it was um, a couple of years prior to the 1882 incident. One of his gang members, George Shepard, uh, said that he killed Jesse James and shot him in the head. And they, you know, found out that, that was that was a lie. So there, it seems like they were just trying to lead up to the perfect route for him to, you know, carry on his life as a different person so he could leave that life behind. So it comes time to where, okay, we've got the body to pull this off with. How do they go about pulling off Jesse James's fake death and convincing people that it was real? What was the, how did they go through the steps and how did, how did they say, okay, here's the body. We got it. Where's our reward? You know, how, what, what is the actual story compared to the legend? All right. Well, the Ford boys, so, you know, they allegedly shot Jesse in the back of the head with a 44 at point blank range, and it didn't blow his face off, which is unheard of. <laughs> uh, there's been also like a, a lady who's a forensic expert for and and ballistics expert for the New Mexico State Police came out saying there's no way that could have happened the way they gave their their testimony. Uh, if, if you'd have shot anybody at point blank range with a 44 in the back of the head, they wouldn't have a face. Yet in the exhumation, they claim the bullet never exited the, the, the school, and there's no way that could happen. Um, but anyway, the Ford boys ran and turned themselves in. Um, they were sentenced to hang. The governor quickly pardoned them, and they were let loose. You wanted the details of how it went down? Well, how did it actually go down compared to in the legend that it went Jesse was allegedly – and here's another thing. He's a, the way the story goes, he stood up on a chair – and he took his guns off, extremely paranoid man, didn't trust anybody, takes his guns off, sets them down, gets up on a chair with a feather duster and dusts either a painting or what they call the sampler. You know, the things that say home sweet home. So he dusts that. And while he's dusting it with his wife in the kitchen, just the, the next room over while he's dusting it, Robert pulls his gun and shoots him in the back of the head at point blank range. And that was the end of Jesse, allegedly. So. Um, there, there's a lot of discrepancies in that. If you've ever visited the home where he was allegedly killed in St. Joe, Missouri, the, the ceiling in that room is so, so low. No, I can't picture any man having to stay or anybody having to stand on a chair to dust anything. It's an extremely low ceiling. It's maybe six and a half foot, six, eight, something like that. So that that kind of and you know that kind of discounted that even a guy who was five four probably wouldn't have to stand on the chair to dust the 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 painting. See, the thing is, if he was so, shot in the back of the head and, and his face, there would be blood everywhere. Oh, and there was also a hole in the wall put put there later. Uh, we we interviewed a man whose family used to own that, and he played in the house when he was a child. He said the floor, the hole was added later, you know, just for tourists. 
and they would drip chicken blood on the floor so tourists could see the blood spot, you know, the stain on the floor where Jesse died. And it wasn't, it was just chicken blood. But, uh, and that was just to sell, they, you know, some people would sell splinters with the chicken blood on it for a quarter, things like yeah, that. Yeah, I heard legends so, that his mom would just get guns every once in a while and sell the guns off and say, yeah, that was one of Jesse James's yeah, and, guns. Yeah she, yeah, she even sold pebbles off his grave. And, uh, you know, that wasn't his grave. It was it, it was her nephew's grave, actually. But um, so they take the body down to down to the street. They display it in St. Joseph, Missouri. And the only people who could who could identify it, they had them, you know, filed by his mother, family members and his fellow gang members and, and former gang members. Actually, it wasn't his, his current gang members at the time. It was guys who rode with him during the war and uh, in his gang. And they, they said, oh, yeah, that's Jesse. It was just a handful of people that verified it, and they were all friends and family of Jesse. So and that's the only the, – the law had no clue. They had to take their word for it. So when somebody dies in, these, in, in those days, whenever an outlaw was brought in to be hanged or captured or whatever, they made a big deal about it. They would parade the body around and make a big spectacle of it. Did any of that happen with this? It happened with the body that was said to have been Jesse's. But Wood Height, who was an outlaw, is part of the gang. They never displayed him at all. They, you know, he was allegedly killed at a different time, but nobody displayed his body at all. The the official story was they dug him up and just told the sheriff. The sheriff wanted to uh, Sheriff Timberlake, who was also a relative of Jesse's and lived in the same county, said he brought in the body of Wood, wanted the reward, and they told him, you know, just go get rid of it. We don't, we're not paying for it. So and that that was the end of the story with uh, Wood Heights body and nobody knows where it is. Well, I was going to say, because from what I know about a lot of that era and that time, everybody was related. And, yeah, we all know that that doesn't necessarily mean everybody gets along. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, that goes <laughs> for today, too. Well, that's We've true, got, too. Yeah. But, you know, so what do you guys know about that particular period of time and the willingness of different members of the family cousins you know because everybody's you know family trees look like a you know a bar of brambles yeah but you know how well do you know who would and would not have covered for him if if it wasn't him sheriff timberlake was not well there was another uh, jesse's alias was james lafayette courtney there was a sheriff courtney in the same area at the same time who was related to jesse as well and he 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 retired. He owned an inn on the side of the road. A Pinkerton man, a Pinkerton detective stopped at the inn one night and said he wanted to uh, he, he he started talking. He said, yeah, I'm out to catch Jesse and Frank. I'm, I'm heading up to their farm and I'm going to spy on them and bring them in that after he left the sheriff. Courtney fed him his last meal. And the next morning he was found dead on the side of the road. And that was a Pinkerton detective. And shortly after that is when the Pinkertons threw a bomb into the James farm and uh, killed his little brother, tore his mother's arm off and maimed his stepfather's hand. Now, the arm is and, the arm missing is an important detail, which we're going to go back to later. That was that's very unique because that supports your photographic evidence. But I just want to put a pin in that so we can go back to it. Go ahead. Okay, yeah. And also and that goes along with what you were mentioning earlier about the Pinkertons being ruthless. I mean, they they. They had dynamited several people, not not including the Jameses. They'd done it to miners who were on strike and other people throughout history. But uh, we'll just call the Pinkertons the mercenaries. I mean, yeah, they were. they were. 
and they were ruthless. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, there, he had a lot of family members. They didn't all get along. But like Sheriff Timberlake, for example, uh, Timberlake had – he had always half-heartedly chased Jesse and Frank, and he got too close at one time, and Jesse shot his horse out from under him. About a year and a half later, Jesse saw Sheriff Timberlake's son, his cousin, in Dallas, Texas, and Jesse – paid him $50 and told him to give the 50 to his dad. And he apologized for shooting the horse out from under him. I mean, that was, you, you, it just seemed a little too friendly to be a, you know, what, what outlaw would do that for the sheriff who was trying to allegedly hang him. It just seemed a little too friendly. So it was. Now the one question I got to ask just to complete the circle here. Now the person that they brought in who they said was Jesse James, who wasn't Jesse James, they brought it and said, this is Jesse right here. This is the body. That particular person, nobody ever asked what happened to that person or what, you know, they died. They just went missing and everybody was like, oh yeah, well, he's missing. Gosh darn, we don't know what happened to him. You know, there was no inquiry yeah. about what happened to him or, you know, where's the body or anything. Nobody really dug into that. They didn't know, they didn't seem to care to even look <laughs> for Wood Height or the farmhand. They, they just went missing and that was that. Does that mean there wasn't enough of a bounty on his head at the time? There was a bounty on all the James gang members, but after they had faked the death, or if you even go along his, his, uh, the historically accepted story, after Jesse was out, everybody else just seemed, they didn't care. They quit caring about any of the others. Except Frank, he was uh, put on a, he was put on trial uh, shortly after that. He turned himself in. They, they put him on trial, and he was acquitted of anything. No murder, no robberies, nothing. They, they just, he, and uh, Stonewall Jackson, the former general, uh, he was in that, in the courthouse during Frank's trial and he got so mad. He was drunk and very mad and he threatened or he challenged the prosecutor to a duel. Oh I mean, it, it was a wild court battle. So. <laughs> it was the OJ trial of its time. <laughs> exactly. It was. <laughs> okay, so Jesse James, boom, dead. Bodies in there. James is, Jesse James is in the ground. Uh, that's it for that chapter in history. Does the James gang keep going on and robbing banks, or do they all go their separate ways? Or what, what happens to the James gang after you know Jesse's gone? You want to take that, Teresa? Uh, well, I, I know that there was one. Wasn't there one, Danny, like the very day that Jesse James died, stating that there was a bank robbery down in Texas and they were claiming it to be Jesse James? Yeah, it was a train robber. A train was robbed outside of Fort Worth, I believe, west of Fort Worth. And it was a, they said the M, it was the same M.O. And, and it was a group of older, older men, you know, middle aged who had robbed this train. And they they said in all appearances, it was I think they even titled the, the article Jesse James strikes again or strikes from the grave. And uh, it, it was basically same MO, same style, everything. They were very professional about it, hit the train, got their money and got out, disappeared. So it was almost like uh, and then there were, was a letter written attributed to Jesse saying nobody killed me. I'm, I'm safe and alive in Texas, you know, and that that, that stirred up stuff. But but it did, there was just some it was almost like. Some people believed it. A lot of people believed it. Some of the old gang members had even been interviewed and said he didn't die. But people, they wanted it. They wa Jesse wanted to be dead, so that's how it worked out. And I think if you look at it, for example, the James gang 
They were hitting so many trains and stages in Missouri that trains were rerouting and going around the state, which cut into the state's economy. And so with Jesse dead, and and it seems likely that he could have easily struck a deal with his cousin, the governor, uh, Governor Crittenden. He could have struck a deal with him and said, look, I get away and you're, you know, the economy gets better. Uh, No more train robberies. None of this. I'll leave the state. And that was that it was taken care of. So Jesse James is now dead. What does Jesse do now? He moves down to, I believe you had it was as Blevins, Texas. Yeah. What does this life become now? Because he can't be an outlaw anymore. How do you go from living one life to another life? He moved to Blevins, Texas. He was he bought a farm from his father-in-law, uh, Thomas Barron. It was 160 acres with a house on it. He married, you know, Mary Ellen Barron. And they had children and he'd had children before he'd ever faked his death in 1882. He came to Texas in 1871, but he, uh, he, then that's a good, good question because he would write in his journal. Well, he, he didn't seem to do much. And back then, if you had a thriving farm, which he did, it usually took work, but he never had to work. I mean, he'd do a little here and there, take care of his bees, things like that, but he never really worked much. And there were a lot of known Quantrell's guerrillas who he rode with in the Civil War and former former James gang members lived in the area around him. And um, that's where it gets into deeper, deeper topics. I think it was more than just normal outlaws. They were also mixed in with it was almost like a network, criminal network, if that makes any sense. It's kind of, you know, a lot of people look at the old West and they think it was crazy wild cowboys running around shooting their guns robbing a few things and having shootouts when in actuality it was more like a criminal network. And that's the best way I can put it. Connections down in Texas. Yeah. A lot of connections in his diary. For example, he mentions known James gang members all around him. He and several of the gang members in his diary, they went to Louisiana. They went to Shreveport, caught a steamboat, went south to Natchitoches, Texas, went to Natchitoches. It's a little town. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's Natchitoches. Yeah, Nat- <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So they went there, got off the steamship, crossed onto the Louisiana side and rode back north opposite the direction they'd just traveled. And they stayed at a man's house named G. Fontenot. Was Gervais Fontenot was his name. And I, I did the I researched Gervais. I wanted to know who this guy was. Why did he stop at his house and stay there for a while? Well, Gervais was the nephew of the famous pirate Jean Lafitte. And that just ties into that goes down a whole new rabbit hole. So there's a tie with Jean Lafitte's nephew. But also, when you look at old news accounts of robberies that happened along that area, the same time he was there, the steamship got got hit. It was robbed. And several stagecoaches were robbed at the same place and same time he was there, he and his gang. And I think they just they would take off every once in a while, hit a few targets and then disappear and go back home. But was it the same old gang getting back together? Or was it, did he bring together a whole new gang to, to go do the hits? It was mostly the same old gang. Uh, and a lot of the guys used to be, they rode with him in the Civil War. They were all guerrillas and they were also outlawed just for being guerrillas. So they were already outlaws as it was and they were used to doing that. And, and at different times, and that's another thing, the gang had its core, but they had a lot of former guerrillas who would ride with them here and there. You know, if they needed a little extra money to help their farm or whatever, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd ride along and hit a few targets, get their cut, and then they, they'd disappear for a while. 
So did he change his appearance or anything like that? I mean, I realize that people didn't have a good idea of what he looked like. But still, if you're starting a new life, you'd want to change. Like nowadays, like if you try, it's very, in modern times, it's very, very hard to difficult to fake your death. Yeah. Because people have a tendency to go back to their old habits and do the things that they used to do. You know, it's just that's how they catch these people when they do fake their own deaths because they contact old family members. They do all these songs. And granted, at this time back then, you didn't have the same technology and the same investigations and things like that going on. So, I mean, how much did he have to change of himself to go into this new life? Well, if that's a good question. And he didn't really have to change too much because the law didn't even have a good description of him. And they, they were never really sure who they were chasing, which is another that. reason. It blows my mind. That this is like this is yeah. one of the most notorious outlaws that there is. And he's done all of these heinous things because he, he was he was no saint. Like we have this tendency in America yeah. to glorify Jesse James as like a Robin Hood kind of character. And he really wasn't because yeah. he would rob banks and the people that had their money in the banks. Well, sorry, you're out of luck. Your money's gone. It's just been robbed. So. Yeah, you know, and he he was a murderer. He did all these things, and we and we have this tendency to want to be like, yeah, he's he was this great outlaw hero. He really wasn't, but this is a big life to leave behind to go off and try to do something completely different. It's it's kind of it gets in your blood. This is something that this is the only thing you know how to do. Yeah. So yeah. how do you go about changing I mean, that? Well, he would change his appearance sometimes. Uh, the reason, and one of the reasons they didn't have a good description of him is only his family and friends really, really knew what he looked like. And th- there weren't many photos. The photos they had, they kept to themselves. They weren't going to say, "Oh yeah, here, Mister Pinkerton agent, here's here's a picture of my son." But it, you know, there weren't a lot of photos, and he didn't go to saloons in small towns and, and live it up like a lot of people did. He kept, he lived a very low key life and uh, he loved his family and he just spent most of his time quietly pretending to be a farmer. Well, when they had a, a target to hit, they would just, you know, they would just get the gang back together, make their hit and they'd all disappear again. But uh, he would, he would change his appearance sometimes like a lot of our family photos, some of them he has a full goatee. Other times it's a little strip like a soul patch. <laughs> and uh, other times he would have no beard at all and just a mustache. And he would also comb it with, um, oh, it was like, I forgot what they called it back then. It was like a beard, beard wax or something that uh, changed the color to a black instead of a sandy blonde color. And that he, so he would change a little bit, but not that much. Now, going back real quickly, yeah. you mentioned that the Pinkertons bombed his house and they blew his mother's arm off. Now, I believe if I read right, you guys have that's one of the, the photographic pieces of evidence that you guys have that his mom is missing. His mom is taken with a picture that you guys have and she's missing an arm in that picture. And that picture cross references with earlier pictures of her missing her arm as well. Am I am I telling this right or am I getting it wrong? No, oh, that's correct. Yeah, that's that was right. the one that. One of the big piece of, uh, pieces of evidence that we found, not only the missing arm, but we also have a picture of one of ours where she was wearing the exact same dress with the same pattern that Zerelda was wearing in a historically accepted photo of Zerelda. So we have several of that as well that, you know, linked our, our theory to proving it was Jesse James. Okay, so going back around again, he's now in Blevins, Texas. He's settled down. He's got this farm. Um, I assume he's got lots of money hidden all over the place, and he becomes a Freemason. Uh, is that correct? 
That's true. Like, so was he a Freemason before this, or he didn't join the Freemasons until after he started his new life? That's a good question. Also, he, uh, well, as far as we know, he was a Freemason under his alias. Um, but I do know during the Civil War, like Quantrill's guerrillas, they they rent, they rode a range from northern Missouri, Kansas, down through Indian Territory, which is modern day Oklahoma, and deep into Texas. So they 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 fought in a lot of areas, and they would also hide out in areas. Mostly, most of the time when they hid out, it was always in Texas. Um, but during during the Civil War in Oklahoma, Indian Territory, um, Albert Pike. What they'd ha- they'd been in the same camp with Albert Pike. He was a brigadier general for the Confederacy, and he was Albert Pike was had very strong and good relations with the Comanche and several other tribes who were in and around that area. Um, and I believe I know, and this is just a theory. There's no facts or or there's no proof that Jesse met and spoke with Albert Pike, but that was one of his one of many Masons he had contact with during the war. Uh, but I do know after after he changed his name he and moved to Texas, he became a Freemason under his alias of James Lafayette Courtney. So looking at that era and that time, I mean, so there's a lot of stories about what may have come out of him being in the Freemasons. We know that the Freemasons were a foundation for a lot of other private groups, things like that, that fun, formed, spun off of that period of time, mm-hmm. still do. So, you know, we've got a lot of stories going back to the KGC, you know, the Knights of the Golden Circle and yeah. being a spinoff of the Freemasons. So if you look at that, I mean, it, it, it's a pretty strong assumption that if you were in the military at that point in time, you probably were pulled into the Freemasons, at least if you were favored by certain people or you, you met certain criteria, because you still had a chance then of if you surrendered getting away by showing, you know, the, the distress symbol and all that sort of the distress signal and all the rest of that. Mm-hmm. So if you look at some of those things from that period of time and you start talking about Quantrell's Raiders and, you know, a lot of the stories about a lot of the heists they pulled off because they pulled off a lot. They, they stole a lot of money. That was a lot of money to blow. And if you're not sitting in the casinos, it's kind of hard to spend that kind of money. Exactly. So, so that's where the story always came into was a lot of their raids and a lot of their heists weren't necessarily a heist strictly for you know them to go and and you know rip everybody off. It was to raise money for the for the KGC. Some people claim the KGC was a big part of it. There's no proof of it. And I, I wouldn't doubt it. it. It wouldn't shock me at all if I found proof that Jesse and some of the others were members of the Knights of the Golden Circle. But there's just no proof of it. And it's hard to, you know, other than just speculation, you, you really can't say yes, they were or no, they weren't. Um, I know a lot of the treasures, when it when you get into that part of it, a lot of the treasures predate the Knights of the Golden Circle by centuries. So mm-hmm. the, the, I know, you know, there were there was a time and there's still people who do it. I've seen a lot of treasure hunters claim, oh, that's Knights of the Golden Circle treasure. And most of them are. And it just doesn't add up when you look at the dates of the treasures and items that had been recovered in different places. They don't match the same time period of the the Knights of the Golden Circle. So if you take that out of the mix, because that's one been one of those stories I always found interesting. But like Mm -hmm. you say, I've never seen anything that that sort of reinforced that idea of that's where the money went. Where'd the money go? Because you good question. If you had that kind of money. 
you've got the ability to to go and hide somewhere else. I mean, you've got the ability to buy a small country based on the amount that they stole over the over their career. Yeah. What does that translate so if you to have that kind of- dollars? Sorry, sorry, James. What what would that trans the amount of money that they stole? About what would it translate to in today's dollars to give people a reference? Let's see. Like their first robbery in Liberty, Missouri, was a, they were a, 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 it's alleged they got away with $60,000. Well, a gold, one gold double eagle was around $20. It was 20, a $20 double eagle was really close to an ounce of gold. So $60,000 divided by 20. What is that? Six thousand, three thousand, three thousand ounces of gold. And today, I think the current price is like eighteen hundred and eighty-five dollars an ounce in current current price for gold. So eighteen eighty eighteen hundred and eighty-five dollars times three thousand. It's a lot of money. So we're talking like millions here. For- <laughs> yes, many millions. Okay. Today's, uh, today's, uh, I've seen numbers that estimate that current value would be billions. Okay. Yeah. And, and like uh, Victoria Peak, that uh, treasure that was mentioned in the, the Watergate hearings in New Mexico, when it was discovered, it was allegedly $3 billion in gold. And that was back when gold was priced at thirty two fifty an ounce, I believe. Okay. So I just wanted to establish, because when you, when you hear about the robberies and stuff, you think they're only getting away with, you know, a couple of thousand dollars off of the trains or they're getting rid of this. It's, it's hard to put into perspective how much money these guys actually took. So when when James here is talking about, yes, that's a lot of money to spend. And if you're living quite a kind of a quiet life off at a ranch somewhere, you know, that puts puts it into perspective how much money these guys had. So anyways, back to what you guys were saying. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to put a a perspective out there of how much how much wealth these guys had accumulated over all this time. I don't remember where you left off. They had a lot of wealth. And, well, like one of the old gentlemen I knew, he passed away years ago, uh, George Roaming. He was a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemason. And when he was a child, he grew up next to my great-great-grandfather. Uh, my great-great-grandfather died in 1943, Jesse. And he, he had Jesse had hired George when George was around 10 years old and Jesse was in his late 80s. Uh, Jesse had hired him to help him move some treasure. It was 700 bars of gold and they weighed about 15 pounds each. And uh, they wrote about, That's uh, a lot according of to George, <laughs> yeah, a lot of uh, he said they rented, they, they didn't rent, uh, Jesse had a wagon, they called a dray. Back then it was like a, a very large freight wagon. And he had some mules, you know, a team of mules to pull it. And they traveled, he said it took them all day to get, I think it was 18 miles, 18 to 20 miles away from Jesse's house. And they buried, he said, Jesse kept 20 bars for himself, and they buried 680 bars of gold. And when they got to where they were going, they met two other old gentlemen about Jesse's age at the time. And each of those men had hired a small, you know, a young boy, 10 to 12 years of age, and they all swore them to an oath of secrecy. And uh, George, when he told us this story, he and the other two boys had joined, you know, they, they fought in World War II, lied about their age. They were all about. 15 or 16 lied about their age, went and fought in the war. And George was the only, only one of those three who lived through the war. And as far as he knew, he was the only person who knew about that treasure. So he drew us a map. We went out to find it and it's on Fort hood military re- reservation. So yeah, you ain't getting that. You know, when you see it, on, 
no, I'm not touching that. I'm not even going to try or think about it. So, <laughs> so I got to ask because uh, you've got another book, which is Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure. So I bring up the Freemasons, and James brought up the Knights of the Golden Circle. Do you want to talk a little bit about that book and about the Templar Treasure, and how you know? Do you want to talk about that a little bit and see how, talk about how that all ties in together with this? Yeah, well, a lot of it starts well with Jesse's involvement. It was at, it was under his alias, and also before. Uh, which also makes me wonder how early he became a Freemason. I know he was when he came to Texas and changed his name and lived as a peaceable citizen, but he was also burying treasures with the gang in Oklahoma in certain locations. We found a couple of locations of where treasures used to be, but they were recovered, um, and they all fit on a template. And, and to make a you – know, if, if you're talking about the KGC, the Knights of the Golden Circle – in the treasure hunting circles, there's this Knights of the Golden Circle treasure template, and it's like a, uh, a rhombus with two circles. It's got two concentric circles, and it's you know surrounding a rhombus, and um, it's it's an odd look. It's got little designs on it, stars and things that look like bird tracks. And I thought, what well, I, I don't have no clue what this means, but I knew it was a template or, or alleged to be one. So I'd played with that for years, and, and I couldn't get it to work, and I didn't really know of that many areas where treasures had been and uh the former uh, attorney general for the state of texas wagner carr um he he had contacted my mother and because he was interested in jesse as well and he'd been hunting treasures himself for years so he got to talking he liked mom believed her sent his driver out to show my mother and i Several locations where tre large treasures had been buried but were recovered, and one was just 12 miles from our house. Uh, so as driver showed us all these treasure locations, I started piecing, you know, I, I kept playing with that template off to the side, you know, just in my free time. And one day it finally clicked. I saw the template matched perfect when I lined it up with where Jesse lived in Blevins, Texas. It lined up perfectly on a map when you overlay it over like Google Earth or a topo map. Uh, it lines up perfectly with these locations that Wagner Carr had shown shown us. So I thought, okay, finally, the template does work. The KGC was actually real. Well, then I got to researching all these treasures that were low. If, if you make – that's just one template, and the template makes up a grid. And if you think of it in a grid terms, it's kind of like if you laid out a city. Um, like Salt Lake City. You're gonna set down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You lay out a grid pattern. And there's, you know, lots, streets, you know, just vacant lots, all that. But everything's on this grid pattern. And the, this treasure template is basically the same thing. It's just a big grid pattern that, that covers the Americas, uh, Canada, the U.S., Mexico. And I don't know where else. It may only be here. It may also work in Europe, but I'm not sure. I haven't tried that yet. But uh, anyway, so I laid out this grid pattern and I started – noting down all these alleged treasure sites and known treasure sites. Well, I look at all these treasure sites that we knew of, every one of them fit the grid pattern perfectly. I mean, if you follow the template, it's right there. And I thought, wow, the KGC really was busy doing it. How did they do all this in a, you know, a few short years? And I started researching the treasures that were located in some of these spots and found like Victoria Peak, for example, it predates the KGC by several centuries. So, and, and that, along with other we, uh, uh, areas that the template locates, like the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone in New Mexico, mysterious stone with Hebrew carving on it, 
And when the pioneers had questioned the Indians, the Native Americans about it, they said that was here when we got here. So, you know, I thought, well, that couldn't have been KGC if it predates the Native Americans, you know, certain tribes in parts of New Mexico. And uh, so to make a long story short, it lines up with the Newport Tower in Rhode Island, uh, Scott Walters, Kensington, Runestone in Minnesota, uh, parts of the areas around Oak Island in Nova Scotia and every treasure site I know of in Texas, Oklahoma and parts of New Mexico. Now I feel like I need to take a deep breath. <laughs> well, and the, the question I'd have on that one, and this is this is kind of where I want to lead back to, because I want everybody to understand how many sites that we're talking about stuff is buried. But if oh, we're yeah. just talking even about Jesse James and his gang, why keep stealing that much? I mean, because if you've got that kind of wealth, that kind of money sitting there, why? I mean, is it just purely the rush of going in and seeing if you can get away with it again or who's going to get killed? Is it... You know, why? Because I think that that question then leads into the idea of were they feeding gold into some sort of organization? All right. So the fact that he was burying treasures before he faked his death and after unknown, these known template, you know, the template and the template predates the Knights of the Golden Circle and other people involved. Everything I'd researched with Jesse and others around who, who tie into this story ties in with Freemasonry. And I thought, okay, so how, you know, why, why would the Freemasons do this? Like Jean Lafitte's nephew, for example, who Jesse stayed with while he was on a robbing trip. Um, Jean Lafitte, reading about him, he himself, it's had, and it, this is stated in, you know, it's a historical fact as it's presented. Uh, Jean Lafitte, during, before the battle, before the, the Battle of 1812, I think it was, a, he had Masonic communications with Andrew Jackson. And I thought, okay, so Lafitte, who he, he was apparently a Mason, you know, how can you have Masonic communications if you're not a Mason? And Andrew Jackson, this was before Andrew Jackson was a president, but they'd had Masonic communications with one another. So there's that. And there's a lot of other examples of uh, Freemasons being involved in this. So I, I, you know, I wanted to know, okay, why'd they put it here and how'd they get all that? Jesse was obviously burying treasures on this template, which suggests to me it wasn't for Jesse. It was a job he was doing for someone. And what's the purpose of this? I mean, he kept his cut like the 20, the 700 bars he, he delivered. He kept 20 and they buried 680. Why did they bury 680? And, and what was it for? It's like a safety deposit box that only they know of. And they're spread out around the country. Uh, every spot on the grid doesn't have a treasure. But any place where if any of their treasures will be located on the grid, if that makes sense, um, like like I was I was likening the grid to a, the layout of a city map. There's going to be a lot of vacant lots on the treasure map. There's even more vacancies. And, you know, but but when there is a treasure they buried, if you know of treasures in an area and you know how the template works, you just lay it over the map and you can get real close to them, if not right on top of them. So how many of these treasures have been found? Uh, quite a few have been. Well, Victoria Peak has been found, and that was mentioned in the Watergate hearings and then kind of hushed up. Uh, the military supposedly got it, but then they, they deny any knowledge of it. Yet several airmen who were under oath and take given polygraph tests who had seen this stuff passed their tests, and then they, they you know, they, they, they took an oath to tell the truth, passed their polygraph test, and they'd all seen the gold. 
there's there's a whole, there's a lot of mystery when it involves the treasures. And I think well, and when you've got say it was worth three billion dollars when gold was worth thirty two an ounce. I don't know how much I, I don't have a calculator handy right now, but that's a lot of lot of money, and that's the kind of money governments would love to get their hands on. And of course, they're not going to admit to it. But there's enough proof out there that you can find. I mean, the fact that it was in the Watergate hearings alone gives it some legs. You know, it's a story that's got legs to it, if that makes sense. Teresa, let me ask you this. So, it's been a little bit since you've talked. I get this image in my head of you guys being like that meme where it's guys pointing to a wall and there's strings with little tacks going everywhere all over the place. Is this how you guys put put this stuff together? I mean, the the, inf- the amount of information you guys have is just insane. How do you guys go about cataloging us and putting this together? You know, it, it did kind of start out like that. My mom, when she first started this, she had this pink. It was like a spiral bound, oversized pink tablet, and she would find, you know, the pictures when when we, she would get her evidence. She would. That you know, of getting our pictures verified, she would then um, clip those to the uh, historically accepted photos, and yeah, I mean, it was kind of like that. She would just put everything into this pink tablet, and you know, now it's just we keep it on a computer. <laughs> so, so when people come over your like, was was there a time when people would come over your house and you'd be like, look at all this stuff? I got to show you this. Like, I mean. Were, were you guys like the crazy nutty you know, people that was like, look at all this and look at that? You know, oh, yeah, okay, yep, all right, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I never did. Yeah. I always kind of kept it to my I, – I never really discussed it with my friends. Um, I just kept it within the family. I helped my mom, you know. I believed in what she was finding, and and I wanted to help her. And I don't know. I just never really – I think Danny can say the same. We just never really discussed it outside of the family. I mean, we just wanted to help her with her, you know, her discoveries because we believed in the project. I had tried to tell a couple of relatives in the past, you know, like just a few close, very close relatives who I trusted. And you'd see the once you get to a certain depth in the story and you, you can watch their eyes glaze over. It's just too much information all at once. And, you know, they uh, some of those same relatives asked me, well, you know, they'd get time finally and they'd say, OK, I've got time. I've got the whole day. Let's sit down and, and read. the, You know, tell me the story. And I said, well, by that time, it was too much. I, I told them when I write my books, I'll give you a copy because it's just too much to sit down and talk about. And it's hard to keep, you know, in a, in a conversation with all the questions and everything. It's hard to keep you know, chronologically correct. I like to tell it from the beginning and then work my way through all the rabbit holes and tie them together at the end. And it's almost impossible to do that in a, in a couple of hours or even half a day. So <laughs> it reminds me of a mind map. If you're familiar with mind maps, mm-hmm. um, th- those actually come in very handy with this kind of stuff. You can find a free mind map program and just start plugging away at it, fill in the blanks and and see where things take you. So one of the questions that comes to mind for me and it is always the reason of why you get pulled down a rabbit hole. So, I mean, and I get the idea of mom started this, we, we helped along and then you got pulled down the rabbit hole. But for <laughs> yeah. you guys, what keeps you going down this rabbit hole? Is it just a matter of, yep, yeah, we are now down the rabbit hole. So we're just going to live in here. And <laughs> <laughs> how does, how does, <laughs> that was and, good. I just so, find it 
it fascinating. I, I've always been into mysteries from day one and I don't know. I just find it intriguing and fascinating. So I just, I like, yeah, I guess I like to stay in that rabbit hole. (laughs) With me, it's, it's finding how, what amazes me most is when rabbit holes tie in with other rabbit holes and it's like a super rabbit hole. And, you know, they just keep tying together and then they surface in known history and then dip back down. And it, it's and then you miss that, a right, lot turn of that it the rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. Every back, time. End up some strange world. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's there. You're not looking for the big, you know, multi-billion payoff when you start following the grid. Oh, no, they've got a treasure map. They're just not telling us about it. They've they they, they know what's up. They've got some kind of a treasure map. And they're, and, and, and I don't blame you. I, I, I would fully if I were you and I had a treasure map and I had an idea of where something was, I would keep my shit shut. <laughs> but uh, well, and I can explain that real quick. Uh, when when I started all of this, I thought, yeah, most I thought at most we would find because there were treasure maps passed down through the family. And we had there some of those, is. but they were real hard to figure out at first. And then we, we they had, you know, encryptions and all this, and th- those were fairly easy to break. But the, the hard part, it didn't give you any topographic landmarks to go by. So there's no telling where the treasure was. So, um, but that that's what got me into that. And I thought at most I might find a saddlebag if I were lucky with a couple of silver coins in it, maybe some gold if I was really lucky. But it went from that to all these catches and you've got the attorney general, former attorney general for the state of Texas calling and telling you about even more treasures. And then the former Mason, George Roaming telling us, showing us where he actually helped bury it when he was a kid shortly before Jesse died. And I thought, okay, I want to know what, who with me, it was more, I want the knowledge. And yeah, of course I, who wouldn't want to find a treasure trove full, you know, a lot of bars of gold, but, uh, I, it got to where the knowledge was more valuable to me. And I know that may sound corny, but that that's, I love the knowledge. So I wanted to find out, it's almost like doing a family tree, doing genealogy only with an organization. And I thought, okay, I've got, I know the Masons were involved. And by the way, I put, I, I describe how to put the map together in my first book. So all you got to have is Google earth, which is free. And, you know, just, just some time to start connecting the dots. So if we now go back to Jesse moves in to area, Texas, surrounded by a bunch of the old Raiders, other, you know, other soldiers. So they had a collective bond. You had a bunch of people who sometimes would come in and help be mercenaries. If you see a collection of people gather like that from a collective experience that are going to live that close, there's usually only really a couple of good reasons to do that. Number one is. Yeah, you, know, you still have those friendships, you've got those bonds and you still feel comfortable because you all have that shared experience. But there's also that idea of you do that because you're creating a shared mission. Um, you've got a shared beyond the shared experience. Now you're continuing to do a shared job. So you're all kind of keeping an eye on each other to make sure who's watching the gold, who's watching the treasure. So exactly. if you have this larger community that's sort of all formed around this where everybody's looking and everybody can keep an eye on each other. Everybody can keep an eye on the treasure. Who are they keeping an eye on it for? And what other rabbit holes does that then send you down? Because we all know that out of the out of the old west, you know, especially if you're writing about the Templar treasures, 
how many other rabbit holes does that pull you down and how many other things connect into that particular town and that group of people beyond just the Jesse James treasure? All right. The, uh, well, doing the treasures and researching where it came from, trying to, trying to answer the question I had at, at the beginning is who, who was behind this Freemasons seem the, the links tying to Freemasonry group far just outweighed by a long shot, any links, any p- potential links to the Knights of the Golden Circle. So I thought, why would Freemasons bury all this treasure? It doesn't even make sense to me. Why would they do that? I start researching that. It ties back into legends with uh, Victoria Peak, which I'd mentioned, uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. I don't know if you've heard of Manly Palmer Hall, the famous 33rd degree Mason, uh, oh, yeah. mystic, new age guy. Well, he was married to a lady named Marie Bauer Hall. And before he met her, she was deciphering encryptions in the works of Shakespeare and had this theory that that Francis Bacon wrote. He was he was one of the main authors of Shakespeare, which other people have seen that theory. But uh, she went further and said that she knew where the treasures were buried, treasures that Francis Bacon and his allies had buried or his associates. And they were encrypted and buried in a vault under Bruton Parish Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. So I thought this is really interesting, but I don't know how it would tie in with my story, if at all. And I started tying these uh, treasure, you know, the, the locations together. And I kept and this happened over a long period, a period of years and not just real quick. Uh, so you go from there. I thought, OK, there's there's Marie Bauer Hall's finds. She proved her, her critics wrong. They claimed she was she didn't know what she was talking about. And she proved them wrong on several other things. The encryptions also led to the the original foundations of the original church that was there just a few feet away of, from the one that stands there now. And they, they thought she was crazy and she proved them wrong. And she went further to talk about a vault that was 22 feet under the original church. They gave her permission to dig. And then all of a sudden it got put to a halt and they ran her out of town. Nobody can touch it. Nobody ever gets permission to dig there, period. That's why if you got so, a map, and, you and, just keep I, your mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. so, so there's that. And I thought, OK, there's a tie in with Francis Bacon. So I read you know, his book, uh, The New Atlantis, and I, I start researching all these people. I, when I got to the point where I was connecting the dots, doing a family tree and of sorts, only it was an organizational tree of how all this connects, it gets back to Francis Bacon. He had a dream of the New Atlantis, which seems like a blueprint of what the United States was meant to be. And I thought, OK, I talked to a couple of Freemasons I know about this, and they, they knew about Francis Bacon and the New Atlantis being a template for what the U.S. was supposed to be. And I thought, OK, at least other people think along the same lines as the conclusion I came up with. And I thought, this is the guy who started it all. I've answered my question. And then I start digging a little deeper. His mentor was uh, oh John D., the original 007, they call him. He was an alchemist, a scholar, a spy, all kinds of crazy things. But I mean, he was a genius. Um, and then I, I start tying, you know, I thought, oh, I'll go back as far as I can. So it goes from John D. to Cornelius Agrippa, famous, well-known people, alchemists, um, Kabbalists, rabbis, all, all types of people. Um, the Royal Society in England, uh, which also stems back to Francis Bacon, but Christopher Wren. Christopher Wren was involved in the Royal Society, and he's the guy who supposedly uh, designed the building for the College of William and Mary, which is just a couple of blocks down the road from the Bruton Parish Church. 
And it just keeps getting everybody involved with that tied back into the grid and the treasure stories over here. And I kept tracing it back, went through a lot of rabbis to uh, a rabbi who was nicknamed Rashi. And I, I can't even pronounce his full real name, but they called him Rashi. And he was a favored court guest of Hugh, the, the, Hugh, the Count of Champagne, who was one of the founders of the Knights Templar. And to make a long story short, all these different groups. And this uh, is all in your book, right? Rabbis, <laughs> yes, okay. yes, yes. And all, all these different groups who were, who were they, they all had one major thing in common. They were all persecuted by the powers, you know, the, the powers in that day, which was the Catholic Church at the time. And, you know, if, if you spoke, it, it was just enlightened minds, Rosicrucians, alchemists, Freemasons, rabbis, all these different groups. And they all, all, a lot of them got together. They did kind of, they would talk and share ideas and stuff at different times in secret. And they'd, they'd eventually, you know, they, they found out about the new world and that would look like a whole new beginning for them. And that, that was one of the reasons that's what ties this whole story in and how Jesse, he was an important part. He was a, a historic and historic figure in the old West. And, but he was just a small will in a giant machine. And I think the whole point was they wanted to form a new country and they knew they had to have the gold to back it up. So throughout the centuries, they would move gold over or find gold over here and bury it in on the template. And I know some people are thinking, okay, that's crazy. But if you read, <laughs> if you read the book, it is, it, it makes a lot more sense. And I wondered myself, I thought, God, this seems just too fantastic to be real. And then, you know, you get to thinking about all the power a lot of these secret societies had, especially as they continued on, you know, into the 1700s, the 1800s. And when when I got the book published um, right before it was published, my publisher sent me an email showing me an endorsement from a man who had endorsed. He'd read the book and he loved it. It was the current grandmaster of the Knights Templar, Timothy Hogan, who is also an author and lecturer. And he wrote a glowing endorsement of the book. And that that just that made my whole year uh, just knowing that this guy who's part of the same group I've been researching agreed completely with what I said. So to close all this up, which I know this is not going to be an easy question, because every question I've asked you has forked off into a million different directions, which is fine. <laughs> Sorry, which is fine. I, Where does your family bloodline pick into the trail of this? Is this? Like your your part of the family begins in Blevins, Texas, I'm assuming, correct? Where he starts his new life. Yes. He had he had changed his name. So it sounds like even though he was retired from from a life of crime, he was still pretty active in a lot of crazy things from behind the scenes. So he had essentially he did start a completely new life for the most part. That's true. He remarried or was he married before he died or after he died he remarried somebody else? Or was this the same wife or the, well, the mother of all his children, it was just one woman of, well, all the children we know yeah. of was came from Mary Ellen Barron. And then he was married two more times after that. Um, his last wife, I think he was in his 60s and she was 38 or 39. And that and that was the last wife. And she was they were real happy together. So, but. <laughs> you know, that's that's pretty much where you guys tie into it, though. So you guys, all of the stuff that you have, all of your journals and stuff, this is all stuff that's been passed down through the family, I'm assuming. These are all old family heirlooms and everything. Um, 
Okay. Have you spoken to other members that are like part of your family since like, okay, you've got the family since before he died, which is the ones that you guys are feuding with. And then you've got the other family after he died and continued on his life. Are you in good terms with the people on that side of, of his life? Like you got, you've got the before death and then the after death. So how, I mean, okay. The after, yeah, the family here in Texas, we're, we're on good terms with most of them. There's a few who, don't want things known just because they got their hands on on a, that was a side of the family they'd never had to work period and yet they did extremely well financially ah and I, that's i think they got some of the treasure ah so. okay so now when it comes down to you guys looking for treasure and stuff like that if you guys find any treasure um, if you were to find any treasure, I'll leave it that way. Cause I, I do believe that you guys have got something and you're just keeping your mouth shut which is fine now <laughs> If this were to happen, I mean, would would this turn into a family battle over who actually gets this treasure? Um, if you were to find some of Jesse James's treasure, would the old the other other half of the family come in and say, "Hey, this is ours"? What would be the repercussions of finding treasure if you did actually find treasure and make it known that you found a treasure? Because I think you found treasure. <laughs> <laughs> um. I've thought a lot about that and I I have a map, you know, that I've put together and it shows the locations of all these treasures and I gave one copy to the grandmaster of the Knights Templar and another to uh, a group of masons. That was probably your first mistake. And just that way. <laughs> well, I I who who wouldn't want it but these days, first of all, thinking of if if you get say you find a billion dollars in treasure or even a million what are you going to do with it? If you sell it, you're red flagged. If you bought something you shouldn't be able to afford, you're red flagged. You're on somebody's list and somebody's going to come looking and you'll end up losing it and maybe end up in jail. Nah, there's ways. Uh, there's a million <laughs> ways. Oh, if you yeah, find a million best- dollars, you get in trouble. If you find a billion dollars, you can buy your <laughs> way out. <laughs> you true. can read a whole Good bunch point. of books and say, yeah, this is how we make our money. <laughs> that, that's, no. That what you just said is is actually very true. I remember reading a, a a famous investor once said, "If you owe a million to the bank, you're in trouble. If you owe a billion, they're in trouble." Mm-hmm. And that I love that saying. It's very true. But actually, I truly believe the treasures were put here by the various groups: Rosicrucians, Freemasons, um, descendants of the Knights Templar, and different groups. I think it was put here. I think the Masons control it. And it's been used throughout the centuries to maybe bail America out of certain problems. Um, and I, I don't know if there's any left, any large ones left. I know there's a lot of small ones. But the large catches, I think, have mostly been either rehidden somewhere else or reinvested into other other um, investments. I, I truly believe it's for our own uh, – for, for the good of America as a whole. Okay. So I've got one more question just to go, because if you've got a rabbit hole, there's always a fun rabbit hole to go down. And it's this. Do you think there's any connection between the James gang, what they were doing with the gold, moving things around and another famed group from the period of time, Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch, where they eventually went down to Bolivia, bought a farm, had a lot of the same sort of stories about larger amounts of wealth and you know what they stole what did they spend what did they do do you think there's any connection between the two i it wouldn't shock me at all 
Well, well, Teresa and I have discussed that shortly in the past, and but I haven't. We haven't had time to look into it. But yeah, it wouldn't shock me at all. There were other well-known criminal figures, uh, and and not you know there weren't all criminals. I think some of the criminals may have been recruited to do certain jobs because they were good at what they did. They had nothing to lose, and they could be considered expendable. Um, I, I do think there were warring factions between very powerful groups throughout the centuries, like the church versus the Masons, for example. And, you know, people think, how could you tie in an Old West outlaw with the Templar? The Tem- you know, Well, the Templar themselves were outlaws, and a lot of them were known to, to have become pirates. Um, there's different groups throughout history that I think that was their job. And, and you know, the James Gang, one of many. Well, that's actually why I, why I asked the question, because if you look and remember the period of time, you know, a lot, especially, you know, your your southern soldiers and all that were left. They didn't have much choice other than to be robbers, mercenaries, whatever else. So looking at the people from that period of time, you have to remember they were at least relatively trained in military tactics. They were re- relatively trained and frequently had connections to everyone that came from that era, regardless of what side they were on especially after the war. So I think that's one of those things that becomes really interesting to see how all of that came down and played. I mean, yeah, you could talk about Billy the Kid. You could talk about a lot of these gangs that robbed and the ones that were really, quote unquote, successful. When the ones that were really successful made a lot of money, others were just famous for being famous for a short period of time because they fell in the stories. But I think that was always one of those, the, the curious ones for me was seeing you know, Butch, Butch Cassidy pick up, go down to Bolivia. You know, it wasn't like they were just on the run. They got there and got gunned down. They went down. They bought a big farm. There was all this other stuff and a lot of the same sort of stories of did they really survive after that? You know, what did they do with the Bolivian army? So that's where one of those things that always kind of got me was that idea of not just having the money and the wealth in the states. But if you're talking about something like temporary treasure, old conspiracies, old powers, well, you want to get that distributed to make sure you at least got have some of it protected. So exactly. that's the next book for you. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's very, yes, that's exactly right. We're coming up on the end here. This is the part of the show oh. where I give everybody a chance to uh, talk about where people can find your books, the stuff you've wrote in the past. Um, you know, where can people find you? Where can they look you up? Teresa, Dan, both of you guys, I don't know if you guys each have independent projects or not, but um Go ahead and put anything out there that you want to put out there right now. Okay. Uh, my website is authordanduke.com. Um, then there's, or it, and I may be wrong, it may be dandukeauthor.com. It's one of the two, authordanduke or dandukeauthor.com. My, our mother's website was jessewjames.com. And we're on Twitter, Facebook. I've got, you know, Dan Duke Author. Just, you can do a search for that and find just about all my sites. The books are available through inner traditions and literally anywhere books are sold in the world, uh, except maybe North Korea. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> they pirate it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, I just, you know, I, I, I helped Danny with this one book, this uh, co-authored with the uh, mysterious life and fake death of Jesse James. Um, and then I, I just have, uh, you can find me on Facebook. I have a Teresa Duke author page where I 
kind of list all the interviews and I would love to list y'all's interview on there. So I kind of just keep people updated with what's going on with the project. Do you have anything in the future that you're working on on your own or or are you going to continue on with this stuff as well? Um, I am continuing on, but I'm, I didn't help them with the third book. I just, I wanted to help them with this book um, that we're currently work, you know, worked on, but no, I, not anything. You reached burnout. <laughs> you got your share of the treasure. You're good. <laughs> now, Dan, you did say you have another book coming out, though, correct? That's right. I've got a third book. I've, it's due in about a week to the to the publisher. So I'm working on that, trying to get it done on time. And then from there, I plan on, on taking a different – Tying it all into one novel. Have you guys thought about approaching somebody and like possibly having a TV series made about any of this or something like that? Because there's so many strings to pull on here. It would sound like, you know, it seems like you could get a writer and put some kind of a decent show together or something like that. Like a, like a more esoteric st- story of some kind or something like Netflix or Amazon or, or something like that. Because you've got a lot of, we keep going back to rabbit holes, but there is so many things here. Like you guys, I know you've only touched on a little bit of these stories tonight. I know that there's so much more out there to this that that's why I went to the question. Oh, yeah. Do you have strings all over your wall tying this stuff together, you know, but, uh, yeah, you know, have you thought about like, maybe trying to do this as a television series or, or trying to do something or, a, you know, more book, fictional books or something off of this? I have thought about I have a, a fictional book that I have that I'm playing with that Danny knows about, but um it's just something I'm toying with, and he has an idea for one as well. Yeah, I've yeah. Like this, this book is- to, yeah, I mean, we would like to see it go, you know, beyond books to like a TV series or mm-hmm. you know a documentary or something. It, it would be nice to see. We've had a lot of interest through our. Uh, most of the people contact our our agent, and she sends us you know links she thinks are legitimate. Um, there's a lot of, we've had a lot of interest from documentaries and a couple of TV shows, uh, no movies yet, but who knows what it's all fun to us. And I'd love to work with somebody on any of the above or all of them. This is to be like an Amazon, like, like a long form series or something like that. So anyways, we're going to let you guys go. Thank you very much for coming on here. And um, oh, yeah, we enjoyed it. it's, it's been a real pleasure having you guys here to talk about this stuff. And, um, you know, you, now that you've fed the dog, I will follow you home and I'll be bugging you again in the future to come back on here. So- <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're happy. I had a good time. Thank you very much. Yeah, we did. We enjoyed it. Sister Teresa, and the book was The Mysterious Life and Fake Death of Jesse James. I um, I really do believe what they're saying because um, I did my due diligence when I was reading in the book and they, they talk about all these different things. So I went out and tracked down and verified as much of the stuff that they said as I could. Um, 
so it, it all lines up for me. You know, the, the, the evidence and stuff that they put out there presents itself pretty well. And the other thing is, it's like I said, if, if they're faking it, they're putting a lot of work into faking this because, I mean, you heard the guy. The guy just knows so much. Like, he's just spitting names out left and right and dates and times and everything. And that's why I was like, are you the guy with the strings with the pins on the wall? You know. <laughs> well, you know, and for me, I, I think there's a lot of plausibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think the one thing is that there's there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence there to, to show that something's gone on. I've looked into it a fair amount over the years off and on, but it's like anything else. There's also a lot of, is it, is it not? And a lot of things as well that go through history that say, this is a plausible way to go, but it's also hard to say that's actually the way it went. Yeah. Um, you know, and looking at the science and tech that they're using, there's a lot of good stuff to speak for it, but all of them are also problematic in their own way. But I mean, again, it's the, they're take they've got a good, pretty good what I would say preponderance of the evidence based on everything I've seen um, for what they've done versus and some of the other projects over the years too, you know where you can kind of tell people's motivations and so I mean like I say I I'd, I'd give them a pretty a fair amount of plausibility at least in in their argument that and I mean when you're an author you write books you're only going to make so much money off of these books like these guys aren't they're not getting you know they're they're not getting movie deals yet or anything like that it would be nice if they did to somehow reward the work that they've done because this was only one book and we briefly touched on the other book the templar gold one and they've got other books on top of this one so you know they've done the research they really have it's very thorough it's like i was saying in this book there is a diary in here from jesse james which i was going to ask him about the handwriting analysis and i believe they did also have that done too to match up the handwriting um, which I didn't bring up on the show because there was just so much going out. The diary in here is don't buy this book for the diary because the diary is boring yeah. and hell, boring as hell. But there's a lot of other good things in this book that are worth buying it for. Um, so you know, I believe the guy. I, I I think that I think they're telling the truth. I think well, to the best of their knowledge, they're telling the truth. I don't. I I think they're telling the truth that they know. Yes, um, I'll put yeah, I'll put it mean, that way. And so in looking at it, and that's why I said, you know, why do you want to keep going down the rabbit hole? Because, I mean, if you get sucked into a rabbit hole, you can spend a lot of time down I there. I think they have. That's why I think the sister, yeah. I think Teresa's kind of like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to tap out. I think I'm done here. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, and and that's what I thought was really interesting was, again, when you've got that sibling thing and they're both picking up what mom started. Mm-hmm. So there's a thing of are you doing this because this is what mom started? Are you doing it because it's now become your passion as well? Is this a, you feel a need to complete it? Is this, there's a paycheck at the end of this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think I heard anything from them going and saying there's a major paycheck at the end of this because you know, when you're going through and being an author, there's, I mean, the money that you make from books really is not generally going to go along with the amount of time and effort you put into it. Mm -hmm. Unless you wind up then getting the history channel deal, the Netflix deal, the Amazon deal, but even those TV deals don't pay what you think they do. Um, now I'll take the money. Don't get me wrong. Um, but you know, looking at those, those sorts of things, you really are not going to spend this much time building a major fiction thinking, thinking it's going to make you money because they've, they've got a lot of time, a lot of energy and, and honestly a lot of money tied up in it. And if they're paying for DNA testing, that's a lot of books to sell. Yeah. Even at the current DNA prices, much less. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I was thinking that too. That's why I was saying like, if this is a hoax, if you guys are doing this as a hoax or just trying to get notoriety 
or just doing whatever you do, there are, it's a lot of work to try to put this much into something for what you don't know is a paycheck. Because I can already hear the skeptics out there going, well, you know, they're, they're probably, they could be lying and it could be this, it could be that. Yeah, it could be a lot of stuff, but like myself, I'm lazy, you know, and I, I, this is a long game that these guys are playing if that's the case. So, well, and one of the things that I always find funny to listen to when you, you know, say, tell people or when people are talking about, oh, they're writing the books and doing it all for the money. There's not that many people that make a whole lot of money off of off of their books, period. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of what genre and niche you're in, except for maybe romance. Yeah. Um, and but I mean, if you're in this niche, you're you're not making massive amounts of money mm-hmm. for the most part. I mean, you've got to hit something just dead on right. And for the most part, most people that are making some money, you're making okay. But this is this is something that there's been time, money, science, and tech invested. They've worked with professional investigators. They've worked with government agencies. All of that, to me, lends a fair amount of credibility to the fact that there's more to the case. Um, you know, and I think that there's people that have looked and said, okay, this looks good. Now, here's the conspiratorial side of me. Again, this is goes along with the project I'm working on. So that's where my mind goes. If you also have all these government agencies doing this sort of thing and you're working with governors and you're working with heads of chief of police and all this sort of thing, they can also be going saying, oh yeah, you're on the right track. All right. Now we can go move the gold again. Um, <laughs> yeah, but still, man, I see that was one of the things I noticed because we weren't, we weren't intentionally baiting him to go down this path. But usually when you talk to people about Freemasons and Knights Templar and stuff like that, there's this underlying, you know, secret control of the country and stuff like that. And they did tap on that, but they didn't stay on it. And he basically yeah. said, I don't know. And people that do this kind of stuff and play those angles, they're very big on that whole you know, the, the secret societies and this is how they manipulate things and this is what they do. And we gave him lots of entries to take those roads and he really didn't. You know, he said what he knew and that was about it. He really didn't seem like he was interested in going down that whole, that whole, again, rabbit hole of crazy esotericness uh, of secret societies running the country and everything like that. He was like, this is what I think and this is what I know. And he kind of left it at that. So I was like, okay, it's that was kind of like a test. It was kind of like, all right, let's mm-hmm. let's see. Let's see how nut job this can go. And it didn't go well, real yeah. nut job. So I was like, okay, this is cool. You know, we'll, we'll ride this path. We'll, we'll continue it here because he puts out what he knows, but he doesn't say, you know, he's, he's, he's more or less saying, I, this is what I know, but I don't know much more than this, you know, as I know a lot, yeah. but you know, am I going to say that this, these are secretly funding the, the Templars and the Freemasons to run the government? You know, he did say that he, he, he believes that that money is there for America in time of need or something like that. And it's probably gone now, but that's as far as he's willing to take it, you know, and he could go further with it for, for purposes of sensationalism. And he really didn't. So. No, I mean, they, that, and I think that was one of the things, again, you know, it wasn't an, Oh, I've got an opportunity to escalate this story. Mm-hmm. It was the, here's my understanding of the story as it, as it came in. So I think when you see things like that, it reinforces that idea of, here's our story, here's our narrative, and here's what it is that we understand. Yeah, because even with this next book, you did tell us a little bit about what it's going to be about, and it doesn't seem to go into that direction. It goes into a few other loose loose ends and things like that. It, it backtracks a little bit and cl- covers a few things, but it doesn't go much further into the whole Templar lost gold thing. So it's like, all right, well, because <laughs> you, you would think that that would be where th- that would, because you've got people that are very much into that. That would be where the money is. Let's write a book on that and see if we can capitalize on that field or or what have you. And 
it's kind of like, nah, you know, I'm, I'm going to go here. I'm going to stick with what I know. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I told him, you know, it bugged me when you're ready to come back on again and I'll probably bug you to come back on when That'll he does. Work. So fun conversation. I mean, cause like say, I, I, I enjoy the conversation where it's like, okay, let's pick on this rabbit hole and let's go down it a little bit deeper and see what's behind it. Because no matter what you write into a book and no matter how much detail you put, there's all, there's always a lot more stuff behind that. You go and say, don't know, can't prove it. I can only go so far down this level of research yeah. or there's the things that you go and say, I care about this. It influences the work, but it's not, it's not a detail that's going to be relevant to anybody else other than unless you know all these other moving pieces. Mm -hmm. And no matter what kind of book you're writing, there's always a tremendous amount of stuff that gets left out. That's kind of where I was know. hoping he would go with some of this stuff. I think right. he did a little bit. So anyways, um, let's talk about what you've got going on now, because since last time you've been on the show, you've got – I don't, Insanity. Even, I don't even know how to explain what the hell you were doing. I was on your show two weeks ago now. Was it two weeks? I believe it was for yeah, a roundtable discussion on here. And you've got a whole slew of podcasts and stuff coming out. You've started a whole new company called Continual, I believe. Is that what it is? What the hell are you doing now? All I know <laughs> is that you're about to become an alcoholic and lose your mind. <laughs> no, that would require me to have the time to drink. Uh, so the, the short version of the story is this, um, cup with a couple of the, the friends of mine, we regularly do a lot of events together. Uh, Gail Z Martin, she writes, you know, science fiction, urban fantasy, horror, romance, all this kind of good stuff. Uh, John Hartness who founded Falstaff books writes a multitude of series, you know, Bubba, the monster hunter, Quincy Harker universe, all the good stuff. Uh, that's gone there. And I've only been killed as far as I know, twice in that series and tuckerized in those two, in those series a couple of times. So, um, in some of the spinoffs, so it, it's all good. Um, in monster hunter mom, I'm a minor recurring villain. Um, and in, um, and in, uh, Teresa Glover's, uh, Caitlin Kelly series, I am a consultant to the Bishop. So, you know, they're, there's all, there's always trouble to be had. So what are you doing? With <laughs> so the short version of this is. Cause it's insane. We, we have been talking for a number of years about trying to create an environment where we could continue to work with and network our friends, the people in the community, um, you know, writers, that sort of thing, as well as fans, people we know from conventions and all the rest of this and create something that would create a more continual environment, not to have the bad punchline for that. And so we had been talking about this for a couple of years sitting there going, how do we, how do we stretch this? How do we, how do we build something? And in the midst of, as all the current unpleasantness began, uh, I got a text, John and I got a text from Gail. She was sitting uh, at Disney on vacation and she goes, so I did a thing. Are you guys in? And it was kind of one of those things we instantly knew. Yeah. Okay. We know what's happened and we're going to go do it. And so we created this thing called continual, the, the never ending convention, which is right now entirely online. And from that text message, three weeks later, we dropped our first show. Um, at that point, when I got a text message, all she had done was asked Natanya Barron to create us a logo and an image. And like I say, three weeks later, it was like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And we had a couple of quick conversations and I was already working on something similar on a much smaller scale as a part of author essentials, you know, which is my 
services and education company, we're already, we'd been recording. I have a bunch of them in the can, some of which have already started to be dropped for creating pros, which is another show I had brought back out of hiatus. Well, I was already working on that, building that network. And so we took that infrastructure I'd already built and dropped it on top of continual. And so in the six months or so, since we fired it off, we now have 1200 people in the Facebook group. We crossed 1200 this week, uh, in the process right now of building out the websites, um, newsletters, stuff like that. It's all predominantly been up until this point, fiction based. Um, we started one show called the panel room, which is a topic show. Uh, it can be anything from a generic discussion around, you know, writing various forms of fiction up to really master classes of bringing in experts from publishing, writing, editing, all these sorts of things. We launched a second show called, um, hot off the press, which is a new releases show. Then we launched a third show called fandom, which is about being a fan and, and having that fun, having those impressions. Then we did a spinoff show off of that because Gail's very heavily tied into the supernatural TV community. And so we've had a bunch of people from that onto supernatural fandom. Uh, we're currently in the process of spinning off a comics track. So these are all um, podcasts then, correct? Is that what you're saying? It's all, it's all video casts. They'll be dropping as podcasts on the continual channel. As soon as I get time, uh, we've got a pretty large programming committee and track directors, but right now everything drops onto Facebook first, uh, into the continual convention, Facebook group. Then that goes to, uh, our YouTube channel, which is continual convention. And then we drop stuff into the Twitch channel. Uh, we have the discord channel is starting up. Um, you know, so we've sort of started a full blown media company and we're continuing to expand that we're working with a number of conventions um in various degrees we we were the platform for con carolinas which i'm the the science and tech director for and i'm now apparently the digital programming director for because i wasn't smart enough to say no uh we're working we did some stuff with a number of the tracks for dragon con we're we're doing work with uh, multiverse out of atlanta here in a couple of weeks where we're, we're co-sharing and co-branding everything. Uh, we're oh working with God. several more. <laughs> yeah. We're working with several more events and conventions that are already booked into next year. Uh, we're working. I mean, so yeah, it's one of those things that, that grew very quickly and we're continuing to grow it. We're playing with the idea of starting a paranormal track. Uh, and so what we did a couple of weeks ago and you were kind enough to come on was we did one to talk about paranormal media and paranormal podcasting. And so we've, we've done, you know, we've done shows around everything about writing witches and werewolves. Uh, Dacre Stoker has come on. Dacre is the great grand nephew of Bram Stoker. He's written several books continuing that universe. Um, you know, we've had on, we've had a, on a fair number of people that have that, you know, New York times bestseller in the, the front of their name. Um, we had on, uh, AJ Hartley a couple of weeks ago, we've had AJ on several times. AJ writes a number of series, including he's one of the writers for that little thing called TTSA. He writes some of the fiction books with um, Tom DeLong. Mm. Um, so, you know, and we've had a fair number of people in names. We've had about 200 guests on. Uh, we've done about somewhere around 80 odd hours of programming so far that were purely to continual and another probably 100 and 
by the time we get done officially with multiverse, we'll have done in partnership, another hundred and change in hours and programming. So, so how do people listening yeah. right now, where do they go to find this stuff? If they want to go out and listen to any of this, cause you've got a lot of stuff out there now, where do they, so, is there a podcast channel they subscribe to? Is there, is there a central spot that people can go to download all of this? The easiest place you can go to right now is either a continualconvention.com. The website looks like hell right now, but we are getting ready to do another big drop. And when I say we, that's mostly me, um, <laughs> because, you know, all the extra time that I have. Uh, the other big place to go, and we invite everybody to come sign up and join and, and come hang out, is in Continual, the con that never ends. It's a Facebook group, uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Continual. Uh, the YouTube channel is getting built out. We've got a fair amount of the shows are there. Not all of them are actually public yet because we're doing all the metadata for them. Uh, but the, but the YouTube channel is of course, um, I say, of course, is it though? Um, (laughs) how long have you been in your cabin, sir? (laughs) How long has it been since you've seen a light? You know, you know, quarantine is somewhat over. You can go outside now. (laughs) Wait, what? We're we're allowed outside? Every time I talk to you, you're like, yeah, I'm in front of my computer right now. Can you come on my show? Sure. What's the day? (laughs) Sure. Um, <laughs> poor mac uh, yeah well poor girl you know, she, well i mean she was gone most of the month of month of september anyway she was yeah that was that was a whole different story in and of itself so the youtube channel just look for continual convention c-o-n capital t-i-n-u-a-l space convention um and you'll find that channel there um and then twitch is uh, twitch.tv forward slash continual convention. Um, we are doing a big holiday thing throughout the month of October. Cause of course this is our time of year. This is, you know, our big holiday. Yeah. And then I guess for the straights, we're going to do a big thing starting in mid November to mid January for, uh, you know, for the real holiday season, we're going to do a Thanksgiving thing. We're going to have a whole bunch of stuff going huh. on. So, um, and you know, so we're, we're expanding the lines. We're expanding the programming. And a lot of it has to do with, how much, how many shows can we get done and edited in a week? If you are a writerly type, we have a lot of writer resources out there. And if you like science fiction, horror, fantasy, urban fantasy, uh, you name it, come join and hang out. Um, we've done a number of publisher takeovers. Uh, I filmed three publisher takeovers that same weekend. We did your show for different anthologies that are coming out. Um, we had Josh Cutchin on. Um, I brought him on. We we were doing a show about writing in the fan in the fairy world and the fairy realm, and of course he was the only nonfiction author on, um, so he had a lot of fun with that. Um, and I do have I'm in a number of, of books that'll be coming out next year, uh, and we're doing another big re-release this Halloween this holiday season for Krampus Claus, my first in the Krampus series. Huh. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I, I know that you're going to be coming on here relatively soon. You have a guest in your pocket that we've been trying to get on this show for a while. Um, you know what? We'll save. I don't want to jinx it. We'll save that. But it's going to be a really fun, interesting show that has to do with dead bodies. So <laughs> I know interesting people, apparently. Yeah, you do. Um, you do. But uh, So, yeah, I've been involved in a few things. And then, of course you know, the other side of things, we've actually been getting a lot of, of, of work coming out of people trying to pivot businesses and, you know, people who've been having 
issues is everything went to hell. So, you know, when things get chaotic is when, when we get busy. So if everything's gone to hell for you and you're trying to figure out how to salvage your business, please call. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, man, you're, you're putting yourself out there for that one. All right. Well, let's wrap this up here. So uh, thank you for coming on here and doing this. It's always a pleasure having you on here, especially uh, give me a hand with co-hosting and things. Um, oh, it's always a blast. I would ask you where people can find you, but you just laid all of that out. So uh, I guess I'll just close oh, the show out and, you know. There's also jamespnettles.com, which will oh take you God. to the fiction <laughs> me. Um, and then, of course, authoressentials.net. Um, we are doing fiction, nonfiction, and we're working on starting an academic line of services for writers. And there is also the U- the YouPorn page and the Pornhub page. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I got people to handle that. Those are making good enough money. They can go handle themselves. All right. Handle themselves. <laughs> great, great, great pun there, my friend. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap this up. Um, I guess that's it. So this is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. James, you're up. Say whatever you want. Yeah, I'm just still hiding in my, my mountain bunker. I don't have time to come out. Um, the coyotes have been howling, and it's that time of year. That's That says a lot when, when COVID hits and everybody has to change their life, but you have to make zero changes in your life whatsoever. <laughs> oh, no, there was a lot of changes. I just go hide in my bunker instead of getting out amongst people, oh, um, which has cut down my alcohol consumption significantly. We can fix that. Anyways. All right. Yeah. Take care, folks. Peace out. Later. Hey now, mama, listen what I say To that old love man, he's, uh, he's coming my way He been on me since the day I was born Haunting me down till I go in the ground I'm your son, mother, and I'm a good man Can't do this alone, and I want you please on my hand Darkness close around me, I can see the light now. To me now the noonday sun, it's as dark as the night. And in the distance I see, that love man's come for me. Hey! Just